The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for your spirit to be with us, to illuminate your word for us this morning, to help me preach it clearly and truthfully, and by your grace to help us behold the baby that was born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas day. I pray that you would help us to catch a glimpse of him, to truly know Jesus more, and to be moved in love towards him, to be compelled to worship him, to respond the way the angels did, to respond the way the shepherds did, by ascribing glory and praise to you. Please, Father, make that happen in our hearts today. Move us, stimulate us to worship you today through this incredible story of your son's conception and birth. I pray that you would do this for your glory and out of your love for us. It's in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but Christmas is one of my favorite holidays. And I have such great memories of Christmas when I was a kid. My family really celebrated it well. We'd always have a Christmas tree. And if you know my mom, uh, sometimes we'd have multiple Christmas trees. In fact, it's kind of grown into something of a mini forest over the years. And we'd, we'd always decorate it when we were growing up. Uh, I have memories of us decorating it in our, in our PJs, eating popcorn, listening to Christmas music. And sometimes the ornaments would magically rearrange themselves later, uh, like a true Christmas miracle. And uh, it was always, I, I remember being very excited as a kid coming out on Christmas morning and seeing all of the presents under the tree. And on some years we'd go over to my grandparents' house in the morning and all of our aunts and uncles and, and cousins would be there. Uh, and we'd have a Christmas brunch or a Christmas breakfast. And uh, my grandma hand-knit stockings for each of the grandkids. In fact, she still does that now to this day for the great-grandkids. And uh, the stockings would have even more presents in them. And Christmas, you know, as a holiday, it has something kind of a, of a special aura to it. Between the, the, the lights and the colors and the decor and the Christmas movies and the music and the smells and the flavors and the family gatherings and the gifts and the traditions and the memories, etc., it's, it's a very... It's a very special time, and it's a holiday that is celebrated by billions of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians alike. And if you were to ask people, you know, what does Christmas mean to you, you'll probably get a variety of, of answers. To some, it, it's just a, a special time of year or a, a cultural tradition, but for many, Christmas means much more than that. The holiday, of course, it was originally a celebration of the birth of Jesus. You don't have to look hard to see the word Christ in the name Christmas. And today, of course, the birth of Jesus is still a big part of what Christmas means to, for many Christians around the world. But what is the significance of Jesus' birth? What's the meaning of the Christmas story? Many Christians, and perhaps you're one of them, might say that the meaning of Christmas is the incarnation. It's about God becoming a man, the creator stepping into creation. And while that's certainly a true meaning of Christmas, it's fascinating because that doesn't seem to be the primary meaning of Christmas in Luke's story, if it's even a meaning in his story at all. Maybe that's shocking for you to hear. If the Christmas story isn't about incarnation for Luke, what is it about? What does Christmas mean for Luke? 
That's the question I want to answer together today. I'm not going to tell you what I think the answer is up front. I want you to experience it for yourself. And in this sermon, I've tried really hard to refrain from coloring the Christmas story with, with other passages from other authors in the New Testament because I really want the story to be true to Luke. I want you to try and discover the authentic meaning of Christmas in Luke's gospel. I think it's a stunning meaning, to say the least. So to do this, we're going to consider two stories. First, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' conception. And then second, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth. So first, Jesus' conception. And second, Jesus' birth. We're asking the question, what does Christmas mean for Luke? What does Christmas mean for Luke? Now, over the past three Sundays, we've been trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus through our mini-series in the Gospel of Luke. A few Sundays ago, we saw him in Luke chapter 5 heal a paralyzed man. He revealed himself to be the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. And then in Luke 19, we saw him go to a chief tax collector, a despised sinner. And we saw that Jesus is a true friend to sinners, a good shepherd to needy sheep. He came to seek and save lost, perishing sheep. And then last week we witnessed Jesus' miraculous catch of fish and saw him as the fisher of men, calling his disciples to participate in his eternal catch. And this morning, by dipping our paintbrush in the Christmas narratives, we're going to add several colorful strokes to our already very captivating portrait of Jesus. And the main impact I want the sermon to have on you today is, is simple. It's the same impact that Jesus' birth had on the shepherds that night. They were deeply moved to worship God, to give him glory, to give him praise. Keep that in mind as we behold Jesus through these marvelous stories. And I, I hope that this morning you'll, you'll, let the, the, you'll, you'll let the story of Christmas stoke the embers of your heart to, to, uh, to, to, to fan into flame a blazing fire of worship for God. So let's consider together first the story of Jesus' conception. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26 with the story of Jesus' conception. In Luke's gospel, after he opens up with his prologue, he begins by telling the birth stories of two great men. The first great man is John the baptizer. He was the prophesied forerunner of God. You're probably familiar with the fact that kings in ancient times sometimes had a person who would go before them to prepare the way for them. And John is that person for God. He would prepare the way for the Lord to come to his people, Israel. He was the prophet who called people to repentance and he readied them spiritually for the Messiah. He was also the one you know who eventually lost his head because the daughter of Herodias, uh, King Herod, the, the vile King Herod's uh, uh, wife, it was the wife of his, of, of his brother. He had an adulterous relationship with her and his daughter asked Herod at a dinner party to bring John's head on a platter to him. But this great prophet John, he was born to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Both of them were devout Jews. But Elizabeth was barren. They were never able to conceive a child. And back then, being childless was a source of disgrace for women. But one day, Zechariah was chosen by lot to burn incense in the temple, which was sometimes a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for priests. Worshippers were praying outside the building, and while Zechariah was in the temple, 
an angel of God appeared to him. This angel was Gabriel, one of only two angels identified by name in the Old Testament. Zechariah was troubled at the sight. He was seized with fear, but Gabriel told him not to be afraid. And he said to Zechariah in verse 13, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, meaning that he was to live as a Nazarite, which was a special way of setting him apart to God. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah responded to the angel with doubt. Having a child at their age was impossible. And because Zechariah did not believe the angel's message, Zechariah was struck with an inability to speak until after the child was born. Sure enough, of course, Gabriel's words were fulfilled and the elderly couple miraculously conceived a child. The barren womb of Elizabeth was now filled with life and her disgrace had been removed from her. So the conception story goes of the first great man in Luke's gospel. But the conception story of the second great man is even greater. And that's the point. Picking up in verse 26, you can follow along with me in your Bibles, Luke 1, verse 26. Luke says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. God dispatches Gabriel again, but this time it's not to the temple, it's to the city of Nazareth. And you know, the most remarkable thing about Nazareth is how really unremarkable Nazareth is. It seems to have been a rural small town. And by small, the higher estimates allow for a population maybe of up to 2,000 people. But back then, it might have been closer to 200 to 500 people. In terms of industry, the town was predominantly agricultural, and the socioeconomic level was probably poor, as was the case in many villages then. Nazareth was an insignificant place. May not have even been known by many people. Perhaps a comparable example today would be a city to the south of us like Gonzales or Soledad. And if you say, I don't even know where that is, then that might make it an even better example for you. What greatness could come from a place like Gonzales or Soledad or Nazareth? But this is where God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. And he sends him, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary was a young woman, probably somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15 years old. Women got married earlier back then. But just think about that for a second. Think of some of the women, the young women in our church that age. That's how old Mary was when Gabriel visits her with this incredible message. In verse 27, Luke says that she was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And this was the first of two steps to get married back then. The first step was betrothal, in which a formal agreement to marry was made, and a bridal price was paid to the bride's father. 
And at this point, the couple was considered husband and wife, such that if they wanted to break the arrangement, they actually needed to get a divorce. However, it was typical for the bride to live with their family for about a year or so until the second step, which was the marriage proper. There were exceptions to this, but that was the norm. And then she would go to live with her husband, and they would consummate the marriage sexually. Marriage is currently in the betrothal stage. She's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And Joseph, Luke says in verse 27, is a descendant of David. That turns out to be a very important detail in this Christmas story. Since Mary's husband-to-be is a descendant of King David, her children will legally be descendants of David. And that means that they have the potential to be legitimate heirs to David's throne. Now, in order to really appreciate the shocking nature of this visitation, you kind of have to suspend your prior experience of the Christmas story for a second. Because who is Mary? She's popular today, but she wasn't then. (laughs) Who is Mary then? She was a nobody. She was an insignificant young woman in an insignificant place, engaged to an insignificant man. We know from Matthew's gospel that Joseph was a carpenter. He's not a ruler. He's not a priest. He's not a religious leader. They're not special. And yet, verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Wow. What's going on? Gabriel says, You are highly favored, Mary. God has picked you to bless you. This is not a favor you earned. God has freely and graciously bestowed on you an incredible privilege. What was this great favor that she received from God? It was the privilege of mothering a remarkable child. The angel said to her, The Lord is with you. He is with you to help you. Perhaps here we're to think of how the Lord was with the great figures of the Old Testament. And now he will be with Mary? Can you imagine what this must have been like for her? You know, she's just going through her normal life in the rural small town of Nazareth. And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up and tells her this. What was going through her head? What must she, what must she, she have been feeling? Verse 29 says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It says she was troubled. Zechariah was troubled too, but Mary was greatly troubled. She was distressed and perplexed by what Gabriel said to her, perhaps because she was spoken to with such exalted language. Me? Picked to be favored by God? The Lord is with me? What does this mean? She also felt afraid, perhaps because she was speaking to an angel. Verse 30, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? In other words, I don't have sexual relations with a man. How could this this happen? 
Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive, Elizabeth, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. That last verse can be translated as the ESV does. For nothing will be impossible with God. You know, over a thousand years ago, God said to Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, that his barren wife Sarah would conceive in her old age. And in Genesis 18, when Sarah laughed at the possibility, God said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer, of course, is no. Nothing is too hard for Yahweh. God miraculously conceived a child in the old barren womb of Sarah. God miraculously conceived a child in the old barren womb of Elizabeth. Nothing will be impossible for God. If he says it, it has the power to happen. Gabriel tells Mary that because of God's power, your relative Elizabeth was able to conceive, and now so too will you, a virgin. Now when we step back and we look at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we see that his material is arranged in an interesting way. He has the birth of these two men, John and Jesus, arranged as parallel stories. Both Mary and Elizabeth were in no position to conceive. Both Mary and Zechariah received a visitation from the same angel, Gabriel. Both of them are troubled in response. Both are told by Gabriel not to fear. Both are told they will have a child and they're given the name for that child. Both of the children will be great. Both of their destinies are foretold. And both Mary and Zechariah respond with the question, Although Zechariah's was one of doubt, whereas Mary's doesn't seem to be. For Luke, the parallel stories bring out something really important about these two great men. John would be great, but Jesus would be greater. It says John will be great in the sight of the Lord, that's verse 14, but the angel says that Jesus will be great without any qualification. What about their conceptions? Both of their conception stories are remarkable. Why the miraculous conceptions, you think? What was the reason for that? Well, there's probably more than one. But in Luke's gospel, I think the conceptions, the conception miracles, signal that God is at work. He's at work with these men in a special way. One scholar described it well. Their incredible origins Mark them out as destined for a special role in the purposes of God. It shows they're destined for a special role in the purposes of God. But notice there's a difference between the conception of John and the conception of Jesus. Elizabeth was barren and they were an elderly couple. John's conception was a miracle similar to the conception of Isaac in Sarah's womb. But Mary, on the other hand, is a virgin, She had no sexual relationship with the man. Her virginity is an even more impossible obstacle to conception, one for which there is no precedent of God ever overcoming miraculously. And yet, he does. The miracle of Jesus' conception is even greater than the miracle of John's 
conception, as great as it is. What about their destinies? John is destined to prepare the people for God's coming. But Jesus, verse 43, is destined to receive the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Remember King David, who ruled over Israel around the time of 1000 B.C.? He was the shepherd boy from Bethlehem that, that the prophet Samuel anointed king. Uh, kings were anointed with oil as a way of signifying God's calling of that person to kingship. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart and that the kingdom was well established under his reign. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. He makes an agreement with David. He promised him, verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and I will establish his kingdom. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever. God says that he will adopt the next king as his son. He will care for him as a father cares for his son, and the king will honor and obey God as a son does to his father. In the immediate context, this refers to David's son, Solomon. But God also promised David that his kingdom would be established forever. And while at times it seems like this may have been understood as an unending succession of kings from David's line, the prophets eventually spoke of someone who would come who would reign on David's throne eternally. This would be no ordinary person anointed king. This would be the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means, by the way, anointed one. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9 of this Messiah. He said, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. For hundreds of years, God's people, Israel, had been waiting for this Davidic king to show up. They had been waiting for this messianic kingdom. And now, Gabriel tells Mary, remember the nobody from Nazareth, that her son will be the long-awaited heir to David's throne, the coming anointed one, who will rule over God's people forever, the Messiah. Yes, John will prepare the way for the Messiah, and that is great. But Jesus is the Messiah. Notice also, John, it says, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. That's remarkable, verse 15. But what about Jesus? Jesus, the angel says, will be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, look at it with me. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is a Hebrew way of writing that makes the Holy Spirit poetically synonymous with the power of the Most High. They're the same. The Holy Spirit is the power of the Most High. Now for Luke, what is, 
What is the Holy Spirit to him? Who who does he think the Holy Spirit is? You know, the Spirit can often be viewed as an impersonal force in Scripture, but the New Testament makes it clear that the Spirit is, in fact, a person. And like how one scholar put it, Luke presents the Spirit in most cases the way the Old Testament does, as the presence of God characterized by a breath or wind that inspires prophecy, brings judgment, empowers people for great works, and creates. And it's that last activity, the Spirit's creative activity, which makes him especially well-suited for his role in the Christmas story. Because he's the one who miraculously creates Jesus in the womb of the Virgin. Later on, when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit also empowers Jesus for his earthly ministry. But here at the very beginning of the story, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, casts his shadow over Mary. He comes upon her to do something miraculous, completely independent of any natural process. The Spirit of God exercises his pure creative power to bring about the life of this child. Jesus' very conception is directly attributed to the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit's involvement in the conception in the story of Jesus is even more remarkable than in John's. And yes, while John will be set apart to God through a form of special dedication as a Nazarite, Jesus, on the other hand, the angel says, he'll be called set apart or holy as a result of his conception by the Holy Spirit. The footnote in the NIV, it translates verse 35 better. It says, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, speaking to Mary. So the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. By holy, what does Luke mean? He's probably not referring here specifically to Jesus' ethical holiness or his sinlessness, even though the Bible does reveal that he's the only man to ever live a perfectly holy life. Luke could be saying here that Jesus is holy in the sense that he's divine, where holiness refers to the unique set-apartness possessed by divine beings. And if this is the case, then we really have an intriguing example of the Trinity at play in the conception of the story of Jesus. The Father, of course, is the Most High. You have Jesus, the Holy Son of the Most High. And then you have the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High. But even if Luke isn't making the point that Jesus is divine here, scriptures do elsewhere. The Gospel of John, of course, reveals that Jesus is the Word who became flesh, the Word that both was God and was with God. He is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, adding to himself a human nature. But sticking to the Christmas story as Luke tells it, holy here could mean consecrated to God. Similar to how John was set apart to God through his Nazarite lifestyle, Jesus' consecration sets him apart to God and to God's purposes and God's service. But there's one final note of comparison that we can't miss between these two great men. John will be a prophet of God, but Jesus will be a son of God. A son of God. Now just as a side note, when you're studying Scripture, and in particular the Gospels, but the same applies elsewhere too. You have to be careful not to 
over-theologize what you're reading. If you want to understand the text, you have to ask what the author meant when he wrote this. What did Luke mean by these terms? We saw that with holy, for example. It might not mean what we mean by holy, which is oftentimes sinlessness. And similarly, when Luke says that Jesus is Son of God, he's not using that term as a Trinitarian category, as the title we like to give to the second person of the Trinity. Is Jesus that? Yes, of course. But that's not what Luke is saying here. And if we don't realize that, then we're going to miss part of the meaning of Christmas for him. The title Son of God captures Jesus' role as king. He is king. He has the kind of relationship with God that the king has. Remember in the covenant with David, God characterized his relationship with the king as a father-son relationship. He adopts the king as his son. Psalm 2, which may have actually been used in coronations, gets at this idea when God says to the king in verse 7, You are my son. Today I have become your father. So the son of God is the king. After Gabriel tells Mary in verse 32, he will be called the son of the Most High, Gabriel says the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is a son of God, which means that Jesus is king. And while that's true, I do think that the title for Jesus captures his role as king. It also seems to extend beyond divine sonship in the Old Testament kingly sense. It seems to mean more than just the adoptive sonship of prior kings. Since he's called God's son before he's described as king, the text may imply that his kingship is, ground, is, uh, that his kingship is grounded in his sonship, not the other way around. In other words, Jesus being king isn't the basis for him being God's son, as it was in the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus being God's son is the basis for him being this kind of king. Not only that, but verse 35 says that he will be called son of God as a result of what? As a result of his miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is God's son in a unique sense. He is the direct creation of God. One sense in which his sonship is, uh, is special and shared by another. There, there's one sense in which a special sonship is shared by another person. In chapter 3, Luke provides a genealogy of Jesus. And in his genealogy, he shows that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. But he goes all the way back to the very beginning of human history. And in verse 38, he says that Jesus is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God in a way that's similar to how to to part of how Jesus is the Son of God in Luke's story. But in chapter 2, we also catch a glimpse of the spiritual side of Jesus' unique sonship. You'll remember maybe the story of how Jesus' parents accidentally left him at the temple, and when they found him again after a few days, Jesus said, Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? There seems to be more to Jesus' sonship here than the adoptive sonship of Old Testament kings. It's not less than that but I do think it's more. He was the son of God in the sense that he was the king, but his sonship has an even fuller meaning. Now, you know, it's surprising because the 
The parallel stories here of John and Jesus, they magnify the greatness of Jesus. John is great, Jesus is greater. And yet it's really interesting because the situation of John's announcement seems like it'd be more fitting for the greater person. It seems like it'd be more fitting for the announcement of Jesus. Remember, the setting of John's announcement, Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple, which was the center of Jewish religious life, while Zechariah was performing the rare priestly honor of burning incense, and while people were praying outside. And John's birth also came in response to Zechariah's prayer for a son. Surely this would be a more suitable setting, you'd think, for the announcement of the greater person, right? But no, the announcement of Jesus comes in the rural small town of Nazareth with no, in no response to personal initiative. It's there that the greater child is conceived. Now before we consider the story of Jesus' birth, I want us to, to look at something really quick. How, you notice how Mary responds to Gabriel's message? Think about it for a second. How would you respond if you heard what she heard? If you heard that you were going to be the mother of this child and that you would conceive this child by the power of the Spirit without any relation to a man, what would Joseph think when he finds out about this? When he finds out that Mary's pregnant and it wasn't by him? Well, we know what he thought from Matthew's gospel. He thought she had been unfaithful and he considered divorcing her until an angel appeared to him too. She could lose her future marriage. How would she be viewed by others? How would other people react to her pregnancy? Her family? Her friends? What would this do to her reputation, to her honor? How does she respond, though? Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Wow. She says, I'm God's slave woman. That's a more literal translation. What kind of heart posture is this? It's a posture of lowliness, of humility before God. Despite the personal risks involved for Mary, she doesn't push back against the message. She accepts God's will for her. There's an application point for us in Mary's response. Is this the way that you respond to God's will? Even if it might be costly for you? Do you say, I am the Lord's slave? Let your will be done for me. You want me to tell my friends about Jesus, God? You want me to hold my brother accountable, God? You want me to stay in this state when I can move to a place that's much easier, God? I am your slave. I accept whatever you desire from me, even if it's costly. May your will be done in my life. So Jesus' conception story, what does it tell us about the meaning of Christmas for Luke? Well, for Luke, Christmas means that the king has come. Not just a king, but the king, the Messiah, Christmas means that the long-awaited heir to David's eternal throne has finally arrived. He's here. God has conceived him. He has done this himself. 
This was all God's work. He acted supernaturally to conceive this great child in Mary's womb. This child who is rightly called God's son. In a kingly sense, yes, and in a fuller sense as well. That's what Christmas means to Luke. But the famous story of Jesus' birth, it also sheds more light on the meaning of the Christmas story for him. Let's turn there next together. Go ahead and flip over to John, or John, not John, uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 1. Jesus' birth. We looked at the story of Jesus' conception. Let's look at the story of Jesus' birth. After Luke tells the story of John the Baptist's birth, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Caesar Augustus was originally named Gaius Octavius. He was the first emperor of what was previously the Roman Republic and now the Roman Empire. He reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. And it says he decreed a census. The census mentioned here may have been for tax purposes. Verse three, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. It seems that this particular census, at least for the Jews, required people to appear at their ancestral hometowns for enrollment. Bethlehem is called the town of David because it's the town that David came from. And at the time of the census of Joseph and Mary, they were in Nazareth. But since Joseph was a descendant of David, they made the roughly 90-mile journey to the hometown of Joseph's ancestors in Bethlehem. So, verse 5, he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. At this point, she was pretty far along. Now, why do you think Luke would provide this historical context for Jesus' birth? Well, in addition to the historical purpose of approximating the date of his birth, it seems like there might be a theological reason here for Luke. It shows that God is sovereignly working out his purposes in history. He used the Roman emperor as his agent to bring about the birth of his son in Bethlehem. Now, why Bethlehem? It was a small town in the hill country of Judah. It wasn't a big and important city, but it was the hometown of David, which makes it a highly significant birthplace for Jesus. According to Gabriel, Jesus is the descendant of David who's destined to reign on David's throne. He's the messianic heir and ruler of the eternal kingdom. So the royal connotations of his birthplace, they, they can't be missed. And it's along those lines that the prophet Micah prophesied some 700 years earlier that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah said, You, Bethlehem of Pephrath, though you are small along the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins from, uh, are from of old, from ancient times. And so God, the sovereign ruler of history, brings his glorious purposes to pass through a census decreed by a Roman emperor. And it says in verse 6 that while they were there in Bethlehem, 
the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So there in the hometown of David, the young Mary gives birth to her son. And for the first time, his cries are heard aloud in the night as he enters the world on Christmas Day. His parents comfort him. Mary is nursing her brand new baby boy. And it's really just, it's amazing to imagine that. You know, I, think of, I think of when my son George was a, was a newborn and what a precious stage that is. They, their skin is so soft. They're, they're, uh, they smell good. They're, uh, their little eyes open and they, they look around. They make those sweet little noises. And at the same time, they're also so helpless and so fragile. And what a thought that there in Bethlehem is Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and the Son of God as a newborn baby boy. Just as precious, just as helpless as my newborn baby was the king. We see Mary's motherly care for him. She swaddles her baby boy. She wraps him up in cloths to keep his limbs straight. That may have been to soothe them or protect them or back then they may have even thought that it helped them grow properly. And there in that scene that's so famous now, she lays the baby king in a manger. Mangers were feeding troughs for animals. It's where they put the food for animals to eat. Why would she lay him there? Well, verse 7 says that there was no guest room available for them. More little translation would be there was no place for them in the lodging. And that's understandable. If others were traveling back to Bethlehem for the census, it's not a surprise that lodging might have been difficult to find. Lodging could refer to an inn or a form of public shelter or maybe a room in a private house. And since there wasn't a place for them there, the young parents and their baby may have been staying in a, in a nearby stable or a cave where animals would be kept. Hence the manger, the feeding trough for animals. Whether animals were there or not, the text doesn't say. That the image is captivating. The, the mystery and the wonder of it all, it's, it's really hard to put in words. And it might be easier to capture, I think, in, in the minor keys of many Christmas hymns. There is the Son of God, the Messiah, a baby lying in a manger. So far removed are we from the pomp and circumstance that might surround the birth of a king. But that is precisely what makes the sight so stirring. It's this paradoxical mixture of royal grandeur and humble condescension. Such greatness clothed in such lowliness. The eternal king born here in a small town to insignificant parents from an insignificant village, staying in the animal room because it's the only place available, wrapped in swallowing cloths, lying in a feeding trough. The manger, it does more, though, than contribute to the heart-moving nativity scene. In Luke's story, the manger is a sign. It's a sign Luke cuts to the next scene in verse 8. Look at it with me. Verse 8, Luke says that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, 
keeping watch over their flocks at night. They're keeping watch at night, perhaps taking shifts for the night watch, staying on the lookout for predators and robbers. And we're reminded here of the young David and how he, before becoming king, shepherd flocks in the fields near Bethlehem. The images of shepherding and King David and Bethlehem, they're all connected. But the most important thing to understand about the shepherds for this story is their social standing. Shepherds were typically among the lowly of society. And as was the case with Gabriel's visit to Mary, so too here is it their lowliness that makes what happens next so amazing. Verse 9, an angel appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. The glory of the Lord shone. What, what these shepherds are seeing here is nothing less than the brilliant shining that accompanies God's presence. That's what the glory of the Lord is. It's, it's like the glory cloud that descended on Mount Sinai. It's like the glory of Yahweh that filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's the blazing brightness of his presence that lights up the night sky. And the shepherds are terrified. Wouldn't you be? I mean, try to feel it for a second. You're, you're there night after night taking turns watching these sheep. And it probably gets very boring. You know, perhaps you're sitting there, you're tired, you just want your shift to end so you can go home and sleep. And then you see the most amazing thing in your life. An angel of God appearing with the radiant glory of God's presence. A sight so stunning, it takes your breath away and leaves your body trembling in fear. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. All of God's people, Israel, the rich and the poor, the sick and the healthy, the high and the lowly. The angel brings good news for them all. And as the rest of Luke's two-volume work reveals, this good news was not just for Israel, but for all people everywhere. What is the good news? Or why is it cause for great joy? Well, in the book of Isaiah, bringing good news was associated with the message of salvation. Isaiah 52, 7, the prophet said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Such is the good news and the reason for great joy here on Christmas night. The angel said, verse 11, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. A savior has been born. God has raised up a deliverer. As he raised up the judges of old to rescue his people, he has raised up a hero again, a hero greater than all the others. He was a savior, notice, that was born for them, for the shepherds, for the lowly, and for all the people. All the people were in need of salvation. Salvation from what? You know, after John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's Jesus. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Something interesting about this salvation, did you pick up on the political overtones? The Savior would rescue Israel from the hand of her enemies. Her enemies. At that time, people may have thought of the Roman Empire, their oppressors. But this is part of what the Jews expected from the Messiah. They expected a Davidic king who would deliver God's people, judge God's enemies, and restore Israel as a kingdom. That's what the Messiah would do. And what the angels brought to the shepherds that night, the good news that they brought on that first Christmas, it was a message of salvation that wasn't less than a political message. There is a political dimension to the salvation of this Savior. In fact, as we saw in the book of Revelation, he does ultimately rescue his people from social and political oppression. He is a political Savior. And that baby boy born on Christmas Day is the man that God has appointed to execute final judgment on all of his enemies. But Zechariah talked about more than salvation from enemies in his prophecy. In verse 7 he says, and he says of his son, son John the Baptist, he says, you will give God's people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So salvation is intimately connected to the forgiveness of sins, to the restoration of man's relationship with God. This salvation has a spiritual dimension. And in Luke's gospel, it also has a physical dimension. When Jesus heals the sick or drives out demons or raises the dead, their restoration is sometimes described by Luke as being saved. The Savior born on Christmas Day came to save from all oppression, evil, sickness, demons, Satan, sin, death, and hell itself. His salvation is political, spiritual, and physical. He is the Savior, the Savior of the world. And his victory was won, not through his birth, but through his death and his resurrection from the grave. This child, the angel says, is the Savior for all of God's people, and he is the Savior for you. In the Gospel of Luke, faith and salvation go hand in hand. Those who believe in Jesus, those who rely on Jesus, those who call on Jesus for salvation, Jesus saves. And we also saw in the story of Zacchaeus that his repentance resulted in salvation for him. So for you, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. Call on him to save you. Put your faith in the Savior born on Christmas Day. He was born for you. The hope of Christmas is hope for us all. Man, what good news is that? What reason for great joy is that? It's just as much good news and just as much a reason for great joy today as it was then. This is part of what Christmas means for Luke. It's the birth of a mighty Savior. One who can take on all the force of darkness and crush them under his feet. 
The Savior, the angel says, is the Messiah and Lord. Literally translated Christ, Lord. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which means Messiah or anointed one. We've already looked at the role of the Messiah. And Christ quickly became a proper name for Jesus, but it was originally a title for him. It meant Messiah, anointed one. But the angel also calls this newborn baby Lord. And this is absolutely astounding. Lord refers to a master or a ruler or someone in authority. And this was the same title that was used for God himself in the previous passages. The angel is putting this baby, this newborn baby, on the same level as Yahweh God. And then the angel says, verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Finding a baby in a manger would be a sign for the shepherds. The sign would identify who this child is. Bethlehem is a small town. There's probably only one baby lying in a manger that night. But more than that, the sign would confirm the truthfulness of the message. And this is the, the great significance of the manger. Finding a newborn wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough, just like the angel said, would demonstrate that the good news they heard about this salvation is true. It's true. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, that's an angelic army, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. What a marvelous sight that must have been. Wouldn't you have loved to hear that? An army of angels praising God together in the brightness of his presence. I hope to hear that one day. How could their response to the good news be any more fitting? The angels call on heaven to ascribe glory to God, to honor God for Christmas, for the birth of a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And as there is glory to God in heaven, there is peace to people on earth. Peace to all those that God graciously extends his favor to. One scholar put it well, quote, Peace here is the Old Testament shalom. It is not simply an inner disposition or the absence of war, but evokes a whole social order of well-being and prosperity, security and harmony. It encompasses the blessings of salvation through the Messiah. And you know, it's really fascinating at the beginning of the birth story in verse 1. These events were historically situated under the reign of Caesar Augustus. And in this passage, there might be an implicit comparison here between Jesus and the Roman emperor Augustus. Augustus made himself out to be son of God. He called his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, God. Augustus was worshipped by part of the empire. He was hailed as savior. He was hailed as Lord. He established a relative level of stability and order in the Roman world that began a period of history known as the Pax Augusta or the Pax Romana, translated Roman peace. Even the word good news was sometimes used in celebrations of the emperor. And yet, born in obscurity in the small town of Bethlehem to the nobodies of Mary and Joseph, there was the true Son of God, the true Savior, the true Lord 
of the world. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. It's amazing. Notice who the angels didn't appear to. They didn't appear to the religious elite. They didn't appear to the rulers or authorities. They didn't appear to the rich and powerful. They appeared to lowly shepherds. And throughout the Christmas story, Luke beautifully portrays the universal scope of God's redeeming activity. It's inclusive of everyone, even the lowly in society. And perhaps it even goes a step further than that. We see here the order of the world being flipped upside down. As Mary talked about in her song from Luke 1, God has made low the high, and he has made high the low. The shepherds hurried off, verse 16, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Everything is just as the angel had said. The sign confirms the message is true. It confirms that for them, it confirms that for Mary and Joseph, and it confirms that for us today. In verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. If you were the shepherds, wouldn't you tell people too? How could you not tell people about this? You still should, by the way. The good news is still good news. All who heard what the shepherds said were astonished. They marveled at the message. Amazement is the right reaction. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The young woman from Nazareth stored these things up in her mind and remembered them. She pondered them. She tried to understand the meaning or significance of it all. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. As the angelic army had done, so now too do the shepherds do. They give glory and praise to God. That's the application for us. The Christmas message should fill your heart with great joy. That great joy should well up into an overflowing fountain of praise to God, to the God who has acted to save you, to the one who has brought forth a Savior for you. Are you moved to worship him? As the great Christmas song says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Behold your king. Before him lowly bend. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Amen. Amen. So what is the meaning of Christmas for Luke? Christmas means that God has raised up a deliverer. A great child is born in the small town of David, who is the Messiah, Lord and Son of God. Christmas means that the sun is rising 
and the darkness is giving way to dawn, it means that the true king has come. Christmas means that the true king has come. Will you celebrate with the shepherds and the angels? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, these stories are so amazing. We praise you and we give glory to you right now, just as the shepherds did 2,000 years ago, for raising up a deliverer for us, for the Savior who is Christ the Lord. We praise you for bringing the true king, the heir to David's throne, who will establish your kingdom forever. I pray, Father, that you would move each of us to worship you as you are worthy of being worshiped, to praise you and to glorify you as the shepherds did, and to tell others the good news that we have heard ourselves. pray you would do all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.